Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we take a deep dive into biblical topics in a way that's easy to understand. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Let's Read the Bible Together reading plan. We also have that plan available on our website, grove.church. And as usual, if you have any questions, we would love to take time at the end of every podcast as much as we can, uh, depending on time, really the length of our podcast is what determines that most times. Uh, but we would love to answer those questions. And so we would love for you to send them in. Uh, usually I say there's two ways, but today I'm actually going to say there's three ways that oh, you can send in snap. those questions. So uh, here they are. The first is, as usual, an email. You can email us at infoagrove.church. Make sure to put in that subject line a podcast question. You could direct message us on the Facebook. Uh, we are the Grove Church in Washington State. I don't know why I say the Facebook. I think it's because I get Facebook and the Grove Church kind of miscombobulated in my head. Anyways, That's a good thing. you can direct message us on the Facebook. There it is again. Uh, or the final way is maybe you didn't know this, but as a church, we actually have an Instagram account. Uh, and you could direct message us on Instagram as well. Maybe that's more where you spend time is Insta. DM us there. Though, If you don't know what our uh, grow or Instagram handle is, here's what it is. It's the, it's the Grove CH. Uh, you could follow us, like us, um, feel free to comment on any post, but you can also DM us there. Uh, those questions will get sent to us as well. Uh, so we'd love for you to do that. We'd love for you to, to uh, send us in those questions so we can answer them as much as we can. There you be. Well, the other piece of feedback that we were given was to introduce ourselves because well, you know, I'm Evan. If you jump, no, how dare you? I'm Evan. <laughs> that's Aaron. And I'm Aaron. Yes. So our names. And sounds, we're excited you're with us. Yeah. Our names sound somewhat similar, but you know. Yeah, but they're spelled completely different. We don't look anything alike. That is accurate. That is accurate. All right. Well, today we are kicking off the book of Ezekiel. Um, we actually started a few days ago, but just with how you know, doing Lamentations and Song of Solomon last week, we were like, okay, well, let's hold off on Ezekiel because this really is, uh, it's another big... It's a meaty book. Yeah, it's a major prophet book. We're going to be in it for a little bit. So we wanted to, you know, make sure we give it kind of its full, you know, full treatment, if you will, the first week. And then we're going to be in it this week, next week, and I don't remember if we're in it the week after or not, but then I'm assuming we're going to jump into Daniel here pretty soon as well. So, but here here I am making assumptions without actually just looking it up. All right. So Ezekiel and Daniel... Daniel are the two great prophets that ministered during the exile, um, which is kind of interesting because most of the prophets are before and after. So remember in the minor prophets, you have Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi who minister after the Israelites come back. Um, but Ezekiel and Daniel are the two prophets who minister not after the Israelites come back, they minister during the exile. So while the Israelites are away from Jerusalem specifically is when they're doing their thing. Uh, well, I should say mostly. Ezekiel actually, he ministers from the exile, but there are still Jews in Jerusalem at the beginning, and then eventually Jerusalem falls. It's kind of an interesting little thing, but we'll talk about that here in a second. Uh, he is Ezekiel is located in southern Babylon, and he was taken along with Jehoiakim into exile. So remember, this took me a little bit to figure out because in my head, I was like, okay, so he got taken into exile with the king, and then now he's prophesying about how Jerusalem's going to fall. But Jerusalem already fell. Why is he prophesying about this? And then I remembered uh, Jehoiakim is not the last king of Judah. It's Zedekiah. And so Jehoiakim, remember, is the one who gets sent into exile. Jerusalem kind of becomes – or Judah kind of becomes a vassal state of the Babylonian Empire. And then eventually Jerusalem is conquered, and that's when uh, Zedekiah and them are led away. So Ezekiel is part of that first group of exiles. And then he is prophesying about how the city of Jerusalem eventually is going to fall. So if you were confused about that, 
So was I. So no worries. <laughs> you know, it's, it's hard to keep track of like all the different uh, intricacies, I guess, of how exactly all of this goes down. All right. So the book contains three visions and they can also be broken down into three different sections of uh, these. The outline we're using is the the Essence of the Old Testament by Ed Hinson and Gary Yates. So really good book we recommend if you're kind of just looking to get into the 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 30,000 foot view of the Old Testament. Uh, but they break it down to three sections, which are great. So this week we'll hit the first 24 chapters, and this is talking about Yahweh's judgment on Judah and Jerusalem. And then after that, it's going to be talking about the judgment on the other nations, which is the theme that we've seen in a lot of the prophets, where it's going to talk about how Judah is going to be judged, but also say, hey, by the way, Everyone else is going to get judged too. And then we're going to talk about the future restoration of Israel. But both of those things will be next week. This week, it's all sad. It's all <laughs> judgment on Israel and Judah. So chapter one begins with the brief explanation of who Ezekiel is, and then it launches into the first vision that he sees. Uh, and it is, this is, I yeah, it's the most intricately detailed call of a prophet that we see in the Old Testament. It's It's much longer than any of the other ones. And it's honestly... It's absolutely stunning to read. Like as I was reading this, I'm I'm just imagining all this in my head. I'm like, okay, this is actually this is actually really cool. Um, but he it's, he talks about how he sees a burning storm cloud approaching with angelic figures coming out of the cl- uh, out of the cloud, and so this is the cherubim. So it's like I I, I should have written down the exact description, but they're um, giant winged angelic creatures. Eventually, a throne emerges from the cloud where Ezekiel seems to see uh, – he sees a Christophany. So this is – and when, when we say Christophany, what we mean is a picture of Christ in the Old Testament. So this is when um, when we see God taking on a human form. We would say that that is the sun. And so fam- the famous Christophanies are the fourth man in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's probably, yeah, that's probably the most That's coming up in Daniel though, so no spoiler. That's true. Oh, yeah. I mean, maybe that happens. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, We're but, just speculating. Yeah. And there's a few, like the angel of the Lord uh, that Joshua sees is is often speculated to be uh, a Christophany as well. There's a few others. But yeah, God, Ezekiel sees God on the throne and then he we get Ezekiel's call, which is really cool. So, and then, oh, I also should say Ezekiel uses the son of man motif. Ezekiel and Daniel both use it, but it's funny because they use it in totally different ways. So with Daniel, we'll, and like Aaron said, we'll get to that here in a little bit. Um but the son of man is a very, it's a divine picture of someone. Whereas in Ezekiel, son of man is Ezekiel himself. And it's yeah. what God constantly calls Ezekiel. So they're used in very different ways. One is kind of a point, pointing towards a divine figure that's coming later. Whereas in Ezekiel, it's very much about kind of reminding Ezekiel of, of who he is. So this is Ezekiel chapter two, starting in verse one. And he said to me, son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord. And when they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words, nor briars and thorns, uh, though briars and thorns are with you and you sit on scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. 
And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. You know, I'm starting to think that uh, God thinks that Israel's a little bit of a rebellious house here. (laughs) Oh, it gets better. Trust me. Oh, man. But you, O son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation, mourning and woe. And he said to me, son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll, go and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. So Super weird. I love it though. It's also, a, it's not a callback. Uh, it's it's a for, it's foreshadowing of eventually this happens in Revelation as well. John eats um, a scroll. I forgot the exact context of it, but it's, it's kind of pointing forward to that. But I love this picture just because it's saying that, A, Ezekiel gets a, a call very similar to all the other prophets where God says, hey, you're going to do this. You're not going to, people aren't going to listen to you probably, um, but don't be afraid. And he's essentially saying, don't worry about what they think. And Ezekiel is I'm trying to think of if there's a prophet who's called to do more weird things than Ezekiel. Um, It's so true. But Ezekiel has a bunch – yeah, we'll talk about him. There's a bunch of really wacky things that God has Ezekiel do, and I'm sure that people are – and some of them are like exceptionally sad, and the people are just like in awe of like, why are you even acting like this? And some of them are just really, really weird. Um, But God is saying, yeah, they're a rebellious house. They're not going to realize – or they're going to know that the prophet's among them, but they're not going to care a lot of the time, and you are going to do exactly what I call you to do. And then the imagery of eating the scroll is essentially that God is saying that my word is inside of you. So he's giving him kind of like the prophetic scroll, having him eat it. I love the fact that it's described as being as sweet as honey. So it's not like this disgusting thing that, you know, Ezekiel's having to eat. Um, it's a beautiful thing. And then God is calling him to, yeah, you're going to go, you are going to go be my prophet. So after this, Ezekiel is told that he will have the role of a watchman. Or in other words, he is responsible for warning the people of Israel that the judgment of Yahweh is coming. Uh, God tells Ezekiel that if he knows the judgment is coming and he does not warn the people, then their blood will be on his hands. However, once Ezekiel tells them the word of the Lord, then it is on them to decide what to do. So yeah, again, think, and I actually think this is a really good, this is a really good um, metaphor for what all of the prophets do was they're, they're kind of like the guards on the tower and they're saying, Hey, this is coming. The enemy armies are coming or the judgment of the Lord is coming, but it's not their job to go stand like and stop it. It's their job to warn the people that it's happening. And all what the prophets do is they keep shouting about how this is coming, this is happening. And then the people, if, if we are using the met- or, um, lengthening out the metaphor, the people just sit in the city and like, oh, okay, yeah, cool, whatever. I don't believe you. And that's kind of like what the prophets do. So, but I, I like the way that that's described. Um, in chapter four, this is one of the first weird things that we get. Ezekiel is commanded to carve a small model of Jerusalem. And so he takes a brick and he carves like, you know, this is, it's, it's Jerusalem. And then he has to place an iron wall next to it. And then he has to lay on his side for 390 days to symbolize the sin and coming judgment of the city. Um, I never thought about this before, but I guess like in the in the notes of the ESV study Bible, it's like, you know, we're not given the specifics and it says specifically like like how long each day that Ezekiel was commanded to do this. Because I always interpreted it as he's literally lying there for 390 straight days. But I guess it's not necessarily what the language means. It just means that in 390 consecutive days, he's going to be doing this for a period of time. So it's not as weird as 
Oh, it's still weird. Oh, and we're going to get to why it's still weird. So he and God, they have a little back and forth. But even even before you get there, right? But him laying on his side for 390 days is still weird. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it may not be full 24-hour period days, but the fact that he has to lay on his side for 390 days while creating this this thing like it's absolute symbolism like it's absolute like god's using this as a, a like this is what's coming right but it's still weird yeah um, from our person i guess from our our limited understanding like but at the end of the day like i've i've just continued been amazed at, like ezekiel does it he's obedient like that's the crazy thing to me in all of it but ezekiel is one of the most obedient prophets where he he barely ever talks back he barely mm-hmm. ever says like well no i don't want this is one of the <laughs> this is one of the times he actually does talk back we'll talk about it here in a sec but um there's an exceptionally painful moment coming up at the end of the episode where i think it's very poignant that ezekiel doesn't talk back there at all but we'll, we'll get to that later uh so this is ezekiel chapter four him and god have a little bit of a back and forth about exactly you know how is he going to eat uh because god says and you shall eat barley cake baking it in their sight on human dung And the Lord said, thus shall the people of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations where I shall drive them. (laughs) So, yeah, that's a bummer. Uh, And then this is first person. So it says, then I said, ah, Lord God, behold, I have never defiled myself from my youth up till now. I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by breasts nor has beasts, beasts, by beasts. Oh, beasts. <laughs> nor has tainted meat come into my mouth. Then he said to me, see, I assign you cow's dung instead of human dung on which you may prepare your bread. So basically God's like, you're going to, you're going to cook bread over human poop. And Ezekiel's like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's really far. God. He's like, okay, fine. Cow. You can do cow instead. And Ezekiel's just like, thanks. Thank you for that. Thanks, God. So yeah, he's he and he does it. He does the whole thing. He's telling the people that, you know, essentially the iron wall is symbolizing how cut off Jerusalem is uh from God and that, you know, there there is this idea again that even as the people are in exile and as Judah is essentially conquered, right? It, it's a vassal state of the Babylonian Empire, there is this thought that Jerusalem will never fall. God will always protect Jerusalem and God's kind of getting at them and saying, like, this is no, nope, that's not, that's not a given. And you guys have been treating it like a given for far too long. Uh, from chapters five to seven, Ezekiel describes the destruction of Jerusalem that will be coming soon. Uh, the people are told that the destruction will be fierce, but that there will also be a remnant saved from the destruction. Um, and that remnant obviously is what we read about in Esther that live in Persia, but also the remnants that come back, led by Zerubbabel and later Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, in chapter eight, we see Ezekiel's second vision. Uh, this one is actually, this one's really sad and it involves the glory of God departing from Jerusalem. So Ezekiel sees, he sees the glory of God and God gives him a tour of the temple, pointing out all of the abominations of the people inside. Um, it reminded me of a Christmas carol where like Scrooge is being led around by, you know, the different ghosts. It's very much what it feels like where Ezekiel's kind of in this dreamlike state and God is bringing, or the, I should say the the glory of God is bringing him through the temple. And he's like, look at these carvings, look at these idols that they're sacrificing to. And it's getting progressively worse and worse as the sins of the people of Israel, specifically in the temple. So it's not just that um, they're making high places to sacrifice to God in the wrong spot, or even that they're setting up to other temples or other places to worship idols in the temple of Yahweh. They are sacrificing to idols. They're carving graven images and, and God is showing all of this to Ezekiel. So obviously it's, it's, it's a very shocking scene. Um, and then eventually, well, yeah, we'll, we'll, 
we'll get we'll get to here in a second. So the mood shifts in chapter nine, and this is really the part that also kind of triggered me, like the the, the Christmas Carol thing, because like remember in in the story of the Christmas Carol, the first two ghosts are kind of a little bit not but yeah one's jolly but you know it's a very different theme and all of a sudden the third ghost comes and it's this terror moment of like seeing it and then all of a sudden in chapter nine what happens Yahweh starts screaming in Ezekiel's ears and he calls for the executioners to come forth and the way it's written it sounds like it's very sudden like basically he's leading him through he's showing him all these things and then all of a sudden you can kind of picture Ezekiel having to fall to his knees and grabbing his ears because of how loud it is and then he summons God summons the executioners and he tells them to go kill all of the idolaters and then they go and then they come back and they say, it's done. So it's really a really terrifying scene there. Um, and after this, Ezekiel looks back and he enters the temple in the midst of a whirlwind. So there's this giant swirling storm basically over the temple and he sees the cherubim rise up once again. So again, those very same uh, angelic creatures from his call, they rise up, the glory of God goes to the door and then it goes and it departs the temple. And then eventually he sees the glory of God completely depart Jerusalem itself. So in other words, this is picture of the people saying, you know, the people are always saying the temple is where... Yahweh dwells, the city of Jerusalem is his holy city. It's never going to fall. And Ezekiel is seeing the glory of God departing both of those places. So really terrifying, really terrifying thing. And again, we say this, we say it's like almost every episode, but you have to try and look at this through the eyes of the people who are hearing this. Um, this is an incredibly shocking thing. Like the, the temple is where um, Yahweh's presence has dwelt since the time of Solomon. Mm-hmm. And and to go even further back, since the time of the tabernacle, like that's been what's happening, right? Yeah. In at, at the ark, and so what Ezekiel is saying here is no more. That's not what. That's not the way this is happening. And it, and you know, it is kind of. I think this is a little bit of conjecture, but I, I would imagine some of the Israelites began to get some kind of pagan ideas about how God was confined to the temple. You kind of see it with Jonah, right? Where he tries to run away from Israel, and he has this. It's almost like he thinks if I can get out of the borders of Israel. God won't be able to get to me anymore. And then God starts laughing at him. It's like, no, oh, no, yeah, here's a, here's a storm and then have fun. Um, <laughs> but I, I wonder if the, the people of Israel were kind of like, yeah, we've kind of built this house for God. This is where he's always going to be. And Ezekiel here is getting at the point of like, no, Yahweh is the creator of the universe. He can be wherever he wants to be. <laughs> like he's not held to your human temple. Yeah. So, oh man. In chapter 12, Ezekiel once again acts out a word from the Lord. Um, this time he starts packing his bags to look like an exile. Um, and then he's digging at around his city's walls with his bare hands. So it's, it's really, again, it's really weird. <laughs> like the things yeah. that Ezekiel gets called to do are very strange. Um, this was done to symbolize the coming exile after the fall of Jerusalem. In chapters 13 through 14, Ezekiel condemns the corrupt, corrupt leadership of the false prophets and the idolaters in Judah, showing that they had led the people into destruction. In chapters 15 through 17, Ezekiel uses parables to show the sinfulness of Judah. So we get three parables back to back to back. Um, Chapter 15, Judah is shown as a useless vine that produces no fruit. And so God basically says, I'm going to burn the vine because what's the point of even having it anymore? Um, Which again, don't just skip past that. That's saying that like he's going to destroy the vine, which is what's going to happen to Jerusalem. Uh, In chapter 16, Jerusalem is described as an unfaithful bride, which is, I put, is like, it's the go-to metaphor, um, but there's a reason it is. Like, it's a very apt description of what Judah had been, uh, where Yahweh has been faithful and upheld his covenant at every end and even offered mercy when he could have broken covenant. Yeah. And, And this is something Ezekiel and Jeremiah, they all get at. 
God could have broken covenant way before this. <laughs> like, and I, I don't even want to use the word broken covenant because he doesn't break the covenant. The people broke the yeah. covenant, um, but he could he's, have. He's held on to the covenant, right? And then, I mean, he he for hundreds of years he's held on to the covenant, mm-hmm. and it was one continual repetitious rebelling that happened on and on and on. And so, at the end of the day, God's like, okay, fine, like go do you know, en- enjoy life without me. Like he 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 almost had no other choice besides letting them to go to their own devices. Like, and then we see that in scripture too, but. Yeah, I wish I could have, was it in Jeremiah where he gets at the idea that he he can't be merciful because that would mean that his word means nothing? I can't, I feel like we just talked about that, but now I'm kind of drawing a blank as to where that was. Sorry, sorry, listeners. Um, But yeah, I mean, God has been nothing but merciful. (laughs) And finally he's like, no, look, we're done. Like we're done with this. And he's still going to be merciful. Like I also think, like the, the, this literature is exceptionally sad, especially in comparison to a lot of biblical literature, because it's talking about the the punishment that the mm-hmm. people are not going to escape. But God still offers mercy to yeah. the remnant. Like they're saved. They're not all destroyed. Eventually they're brought back. Like it's it's not a complete wipeout, but it is very much a, it's it's God letting them know that his wrath is coming and yeah. it's, it's going to be very, it's going to be very rough. Yeah. And we did talk about it with Jeremiah because that's where we also brought up the kid conversation where there's a point where you have to follow through with discipline. There's right. A point where you have to follow through with that. So uh, this is at the point where now God is just saying this is coming. And and we saw that in Jeremiah too, but um, it's just Ezekiel, the imagery is so much, like, it's so vibrant as far as like God demonstrating through Ezekiel's actions mm-hmm. what's coming. E- Ezekiel is one of the best authors in the old Testament, as far as like, cause as I read, it's just like, like you said, the imagery is yep, so, you get the, yep, the imagery. Yep. It's so, yeah, you can picture it. You can picture it mm-hmm. so well. I, I love reading Ezekiel. Um, so, you do? Interesting. Well, yeah, this is, this is like, <laughs> I'm, one just, of, I'm just kidding. Well, this is like one of my first, uh, oh, I see. Yeah. No, uh, uh, see what I did there. Yeah. yeah. I, I got so you. some of the listeners actually got it when I first said it, but some um, didn't either. So I'm yeah. just being funny. I don't think this is going to become like one of my favorite books, but this is one of the first deep dives I've ever done in Ezekiel. So I'm really kind of in, I mean, I've been discovering a lot of this stuff for the mm-hmm. first time. So it's been really fun. Uh, chapter 17 is a somewhat confusing fable of two eagles, a cedar and a vine. So the eagle or the first eagle takes a branch from the top of the cedar tree and plants it as a vine. So basically it's a branch that's very up high off since laid low. So this is talking about uh, Jehoiakim. And then the vine is kind of representing Zedekiah. Um, and then the vine is looking, looks to another eagle for help and it doesn't exactly go very well. And here it's, you know, I wonder what that could represent. And basically it's saying like, yeah, hey, like the first eagle is Nebuchadnezzar or Babylon, deposes the king, plants it as a vine. And then when the vine looks to the other eagle, which is Egypt. And remember, we talked about this very much in Jeremiah where uh, the king kind of looks to Egypt for help, doesn't work out. And that's what kind of starts the siege of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. So that's what's going to happen here. And then chapter 18, it, it really wrestles through the punishment that Yahweh is giving for the accumulated sin of the nation. Um, and so I thought this was really interesting because it is an important point to wrestle through because the, the complaint is rendered, why should we suffer for the sins of our fathers? Like this, not the sins that we've committed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so God lays down some truth. <laughs> and so this is in chapter 18, starting in verse 21. But if a, <clears throat> but if a wicked person turns away, from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him for the righteousness that he has done shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked declares the Lord God and not rather that they should turn away from his way, that he should turn from his way and live. Pause there. That's a very important point because what God is saying there is I don't like 
destroying the wicked. Like yeah. I don't get pleasure from that. Like he, he wants them to turn, but God is God is not just merciful. God is just, and so He can't just constantly offer mercy without off without also punishing wickedness. Mm-hmm. So, but I, th- I think it's a very important point because yeah, I think sometimes. The way that we read some of the people in the Old Testament, it's like, oh yeah, God, like destroy the wicked, like go for it. It's very much. It's like, almost like God finds amusement. In it, yeah, or He exactly. enjoys destroying evil. No, and people today kind of think the same way as well. Mm-hmm. Where and here, I think it's a very important point. It's saying that God wants the wicked to turn. He yeah. doesn't want to destroy them. But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered for the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed for them he shall die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Here now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from wickedness, he has committed and does what is right, he shall save his life. Because he is considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he has committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet when the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just, O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn away from your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from all all of your all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit why will you die o house of israel for i have no pleasure in the death of anyone declares the lord god so turn and live so a couple important points he's getting at we talked a little bit just uh before about the mercy of god he's also getting at the point where when a righteous person turns from righteousness to wickedness that is something that God hates even more than the wicked committing wickedness. And we saw this in Jeremiah where, remember, God uh, God talks to Israel, the northern kingdom, which has been all bad, right? Like from Jeroboam the first, they basically almost completely stop worshiping Yahweh, or at the very least, they just treat him as kind of part of a pantheon of the other gods that they worship. Um, they're openly rebellious, and God has more mercy on them than he does on Judah because Judah were righteous for at least a good portion of their history. And then all of a sudden they just make a sharp turn and they go towards wickedness, whereas Israel kind of never even pretends to be righteous. Um, We see here that God is very much bothered by the hypocrisy of it. He is very much bothered by the fact that Jerusalem is saying, we are the city of Yahweh. We are the city on a hill. We are going to be protected. This is Zion. And yet they're acting like the other nations. And so when he tells them to repent, A, he's getting at the point, this is what he says, I will not destroy you. I will destroy you for your own sins, for your own iniquities. So basically it's like, this isn't just about your father's sins. This is about what you are doing right now. (laughs) Like, don't pretend like you guys are living righteously when that's very much not the case. And then secondly, he calls on them to turn and to repent. And so what's he saying? He's saying that they're not the righteous that have turned to wickedness. He's saying they're the wicked and they need to turn back. So kind of a really interesting couple of points there. Uh, Chapter 19 is a poetic lament for the fate of Israel's princes. They were once proud and celebrated, and now they are vassals to a greater king. So this is just kind of getting uh, against well-trod ground there. Uh, Chapter 20 lists out the history of idolatry with Israel. Uh, Again, most of this is really well-trod ground because we've talked about how ever since the time of the judges, basically, they have been 
struggling with worshiping other gods. Really interestingly, though, in Ezekiel, it begins in Egypt. So Yahweh says that he is considering pouring his wrath out on Israel in Egypt, like while they're in slavery, which I believe is the only time we really get this in in the Old Testament. Don't quote me on that, though. Um, But he talks about how the people of Israel go and they begin to worship the gods of Egypt. So even there, it wasn't this base monotheistic culture. They viewed Yahweh as a, yeah, he's our own personal God, but yeah, there's other gods and we can worship all of them as well. So it's it's a really interesting picture of the people in, in slavery and bondage in Egypt that we don't really get anywhere else. And then God says that I called them out for my own namesake. And so essentially he's not saying like, you didn't deserve to be delivered. Like when you were crying out for deliverance that you didn't earn it. Mm-hmm. It was because he knew that every everyone knew that they were Yahweh's chosen people, that 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 they that Yahweh was their God, and that if they just perished in Egypt and and died out, it would reflect poorly on His name, and so He saved them for His name's sake, for His own glory. So really interesting there. Um, and then it goes over the chapter, kind of continues with the ground that we've already covered a million times this year in the podcast. That's true, where the people they continually rebel, they continually worship other gods, and God, you know, continually letting judgment come, but then He's offering them the chance for repentance and redemption. And when they take it, He relents. So, and then again, we've talked about this in Jeremiah all the time, but there, there's not going to be a chance for relenting from disaster. Yep. Um, there will be a chance for repentance, and He calls them to repentance. There is a chance um, for to be redeemed, but Jerusalem is going to fall. And that's, it's going to happen. Uh, Chapter 21, we begin a section listing off God's judgments on the people of Israel. Uh, The picture is painted of Yahweh drawing his sword, not to fight for Israel, but to crush them. Don't skip past that. (laughs) Uh, And again, because all throughout the Old Testament, what do we see is when the people cry out to God, you see God symbolically draw his sword and he fights for the people. Now he's fighting against them. And there is... There is no hope. And again, go back to all of these battles, Gideon, Joshua, like all these battles where there's clearly no chance that they could have won without miracles from God. Now there's no chance they're going to win yeah. because God is intervening. So it's it's pretty, it's a very scary thing to read. Uh, in chapter 22, Yahweh reminds Israel that they are not innocent in all this. They have been shedding blood for much of their history. So basically getting back to like, don't pretend that you guys are some righteous remnant right now. Like you've also been committing sins this whole time. Uh, chapter 23 presents a story of two sisters and they represent Samaria and Jerusalem. So the capital city of the Northern kingdom and the capital city of the Southern kingdom, uh, both of them are adulterous and the older sister is killed for this and she is publicly shamed. Um, but the younger sister sees this and she decides to go even further. So she continues to be adulterous. She continues to sin. Um, and because of this, it is said that she will receive an even worse punishment. And so clearly what's it getting at? It's saying that both Samaria and Jerusalem were openly rebelling. Uh, both were worshiping other gods. And then when Jerusalem sees what happens to Samaria, which I guess you know, I, I haven't really thought about this, but you would think that that would be a real moment of Judah to kind of get back on the horse and say like, okay, maybe we shouldn't just like openly rebel against Yahweh all the time. Uh, Cause it's Hezekiah's king and Assyria or not Assyria, Assyria conquers Israel and the kingdom falls. They almost conquer Jerusalem, but God intervenes. It's a miracle. Judah is, Judah is saved. And then right after this, Hezekiah's son and his grandson, uh, Manasseh and <laughs> oh my God, 
gosh, just the worst. Uh, they just openly like they just go complete like balls to the wall like worshiping other idols. It's insane. They go child worship. It's all this all these different things, and so it's even to the point where Josiah, who is like one of the gra- the greatest king in Judah's history. Um, <laughs> It's not going to save them because because of how bad it was. And so they see the judgment of God. They see the wrath of God poured out on Samaria, and it doesn't change their hearts. It's nuts. It, and so I, I've never thought of it that way, but it's a really good point brought up in Ezekiel. Uh, and then finally in chapter 24, we wrap up what we're going to be reading today in Ezekiel. I think we also hit chapter 25, but that kind of begins a new section. So we're going to talk about that next week. Uh, but chapter 24 is... Oh man, it's probably the most depressing chapter in all of scripture. If not, it's real close. Um, first, the fall of Jerusalem is presented as a boiling pot of suffering. So again, Ezekiel is called to act this out. He's pouring a bunch of things into a pot and he's saying, this is what it's going to be like for the destruction of Jerusalem, which we know historically both times that Jerusalem is sieged and destroyed, it's just intense suffering. So yeah. both this one and then eventually in AD 70, um, after Christ, it's it's also just if you read some of this, like the ways that Josephus describes it, it's absolutely terrifying. Uh, and then finally, at the end of twenty four, we see possibly the most painful. I don't even say possibly. This is the most painful sacrifice that Ezekiel has to make. Uh, and so this is Ezekiel chapter twenty four, verses fifteen through twenty seven. It says, "The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. Behold, I am about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Yet you shall not mourn or weep." Nor shall tears, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh, but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind your turban and put your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening my wife died, and on the next morning I did as was commanded. And the people said to me, Will you not tell us what these things mean for us, that you are acting thus? And I said to them, The word of the Lord came to me. Say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the delight of your eyes and the yearning of your soul and your sons and your daughters whom you shall, whom you left behind shall fall by the sword and you shall do as I have done. You shall not cover your lips nor eat the bread of men. Your turban shall be on your heads and your shoes on your feet and you shall not mourn or weep, but you shall rot away in your iniquities and groan to one another." Thus shall Ezekiel be to you a sign, according to all that he has done to you, done you shall do. When this comes, you will know that I am the Lord your God. As for you, son of man, so this is talking to Ezekiel specifically, surely on the day when I take from them their stronghold, their joy and their glory, the delight of their eyes and their soul's desire, and also their sons and daughters, on that day a fugitive will come to you to report the news. On that day, your mouth will be opened to the fugitive, and you shall speak and no longer be and be no longer mute. So you will be assigned to them, and then they will know that I am the Lord. So yeah, this is like, yeah, this is just such a heavy moment because essentially what God is saying here is that I, I'm I'm going to take your wife from you, and specifically mm-hmm. she's described and as the delight of your eyes, um, which I, I, it kind of reminds me a little bit of like the the way that God has Hosea kind of act out with Gomer. Um, but there is this idea that Hosea and Gomer's relationship is from the beginning. It's known to be flawed. And so I, 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 again, this is just me projecting, but I'm guessing there's, there's a little bit less pain, I guess, knowing from the beginning that this is what's going to be going down. Um, Ezekiel, everything that we know is that him and his wife are just in love and it's great. And then God is going to rip that away in a second. And so an, an incredibly painful thing, um, Ezekiel tells the people 
that this is coming. And then he's commanded not only to suffer through this intense pain, he's commanded not to mourn and not to weep. And so, and, and he does. And, and this is why I was saying at the beginning of the episode, remember I said that there's a poignant moment where um, Ezekiel doesn't backtalk, but he just obeys. Boy, this would be a really hard one <laughs> to, yeah, like, right? not, to not backtalk and not do anything like that. Um, and what's he getting at? He's getting at the point, he's getting at the idea that just like his wife was ripped away, all of the relatives over in Jerusalem they're, they're going to be ripped away from you. This, mm-hmm. this dream of Zion in the city is going to be ripped away. And then he's commanding the people, you are not going to weep for them. You're not going to mourn. This is righteous judgment that yeah. is coming. And so, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just so heavy. And then it's just the whole idea that when this comes, you will know that I am the Lord God. And so I, I hate to end it on a bummer because this is kind of where, <laughs> this is where it ends um, this week, but it is just... And again, we say this all the time, but it, it, you really cannot overemphasize how traumatic a moment the fall of Jerusalem was in yeah. the mind of in the mind of the ancient Jews. Um, and God is trying to get at the idea that this is going to happen, and you need to learn from this. You need to repent and turn back to and turn back to me. So. Really sad. Um, I promise next week will be a little bit better because there's going to be some brighter moments where there's promise of uh, of, a, of a better future for Israel. But right now we're going to leave it at the kind of depressing uh, note that we have. Uh, but before Aaron jumps into the Psalms that we have this week, we do want to take a moment to say like, hey, you know, if you haven't left us a five-star review yet, go ahead and do that. Uh, Spotify has passed 100 and Let's Apple Podcasts, go. you're at 90. So the march to the 100, there is hope. We might be able to get there before the end of the year. Um, again, 100 doesn't really mean anything, but you know, it means something <laughs> to us. It's just, it just sounds, it sounds like a nice round number to get. And if you leave a written review, we will read it on the air, just like... I don't have it open yet. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Uh, actually, just like my wife. So okay. uh, she, I've been harassing her for probably a better part of a week and I could not read it because it's my wife and uh, I am disappointed she didn't say that I was good looking or anything like that. But That's about right. uh, I think she was trying to keep it purely platonic for the podcast purposes. But she said this, uh, Aaron and Evan make the context and meaning of scripture easy to understand. This podcast is very, help, very helpful to fully understanding uh, the Bible. So thanks, babe. Appreciate you. Um, so if you're if you're listening and you haven't left a review or rating yet, you should because my wife did it. So now, now you have no excuse. So uh, you should totally jump in and do that uh, because that would be awesome. Uh, and we'd love to be able to shout you out and re- re- uh, read it out loud. So, and I would say this, I think hitting a hundred is a big deal because it's, it's a threshold for me. Uh, and I think even within algorithm stuff, there's a big threshold there. So we'd love for you to jump on and leave us uh, a review uh, this week, starting on uh, Sunday, we are reading I, three Psalms. I don't know if we hit Psalm 79 for last week. This last week has been a blur in case you don't know this. We had a big outreach, big event happen on Monday. And so our our week is, I, I came in yesterday. We took Tuesday off. I came in yesterday thinking it was Monday. So I did too, um, actually. <laughs> it was um, a weird week. So, but this week we, we start off with Psalm 79. We're going to read Psalm 80 and then 88. Uh, and so I'm going to, as we typically do in the podcast, we take a high level of, level view of these Psalms and really try and just give us an overview and, and, and 
uh, just kind of some insight regarding the psalm specifically. Uh, so Psalm 79 uh, is a corporate lament psalm. It's meant really for group settings. Uh, it depicts the destruction of the temple uh, and the captivity uh, or the exile of the people of Israel, which is fitting for what we're reading with the Ezekiel right now. Uh, the psalmist will open up by describing the destruction of Jer- the Jerusalem temple and its defilement, uh, which is a result of Israelite corpses strewn across the area. Uh, it's a pretty like graphic scene just as far as what happened to the temple. Uh, the psalmist will then describe how the neighboring nations mock Israel, and then he calls for God to defend his people and his reputation by punishing the surrounding nations who have destroyed Israel. Uh, he asks God to avenge his people and punish those who mock him and his people. Uh, and then finally, the psalmist will conclude to praise God after he rescues their land. Uh, so that's Psalm 79. Psalm 80, we're going to find as a community lament geared toward uh, a situation in which people, at least part of them, have received hard treatment from Gentiles. Um, in, in other words, those outside of God's people, outside of Israel, um, uh, or I guess the Hebrews or however you want to phrase that because there's two kingdoms. I don't want to get confusing there. Um, it's already pretty but, confusing. Yeah, it's true. Uh, but any outside of God's people, they're receiving harsh treatment. Uh, and it poignantly, you'll find the whole theme and thematically hits this idea, like poignantly ask God to restore us and let your face shine that we might be saved. Um, so calling out to God as a community saying, hey, we want you to save us. Uh, please save us. We've been We've been treated poorly. And then Psalm 88, which is the last Psalm we're going to read this week, uh, is an individual lament. Uh, and this is suited for a person who's overwhelmed with troubles uh, to the degree that even his friends will shun him. Uh, the psalmist, the, the individual, I guess the psalmist, but even individual reading it or relating to this uh, wrestles with dread that comes from suspecting that the Lord has shunned him as well. Uh, so it's not just his friends are leaving him, but it feels like God has left him as well. Uh, the psalm doesn't necessarily specify what the troubles actually are, uh, only that they feel like the uh, expression they are expressions of God's relentless wrath. Um, and then, uh, which allows, I mean, for modern day reading, it allows the psalm to be used uh, by us as followers of Christ for a wide variety of hardships. Um, I will say this about this psalm, and I actually want to read it in its entirety because I think it's pretty poignant to understand um, this thought right here is most laments that we read after like a ray of sunshine, uh, they usually close on a confident note. Um, but Psalm 88 is distinct from all of the rest in the fact that there is no explicit statement of confidence. Um, there's an implicit confidence we find in verses 6 and 14 stating that God is the one who brought troubles on us. Therefore, the impl- implication is that God is alone who can bring relief. Um, you'll find throughout the psalm there's an ins- insistent appeal to God, uh, and it in turn challenges us as readers to keep turning to God even when in times of trouble there doesn't seem to be an answer. Um, and the beauty of this is it, in, it instills a resilient faith. I love that thought from one of the commentaries I was reading. Uh, is just this insistent appeal will cause us to then ins- be instilled with resilient faith. Uh, the last thing here is uh, because it's included, and I think sometimes it's it's. If it's the one anomaly, which it's not, I don't think it's the only one, but it is one of the few, one of a couple uh, psalms that don't end in confidence. Um, Sometimes it can be wise included. Uh, And I love that it's included in the canonical Bible and even the book of Psalms because it it shows the holistic, the, the whole picture of scripture and the faith that exists in the book of Psalms also exists in this psalm specifically. Even though it doesn't end on a confident note, um, it helps us to understand the faith can be real even when we can't arrive at hope after prayer. Um, I thought that was interesting and I thought that was really important. Coming out of the psalm is 
there's a lot of Psalms where the, sometimes the, the right answer is, but God, you're faithful. God, you're good. God, you're still going to work. This Psalm doesn't end that way. This Psalm ends, with, and I want to read it because I want, I think a lot of us can relate to these moments. And I love that it's the challenge of what do I, how do I respond to hardship and who do I turn to? And that's the, the challenge of resilient faith. You want to have faith that will last and faith that keeps you grounded and secure and stable in the midst of so much instability in our lives. I think there is this, am I willing to turn to God? And that's the heartbeat of the Psalm. That's the, I think that's the, the deep, deep, value that exists in this psalm. Um, so I'm, I just want to read the psalm in its entirety because, again, it's it's one of the few psalms that doesn't end with hope. It doesn't end with the confidence that God's going to act, uh, but it ends with the fact that, God, you are the one who can only bring relief because the implication is that the, I'm, I'm uh, calling out, I'm, I'm, I'm seeking God to show up even when I don't have answers that he's going to or confidence that he necessarily will, which I think is interesting. Uh, it says this, Psalm 88 verse one says, Lord God of my salvation, I cry out before you day and night. Uh, and a quick side note, I just rem- I remembered this. Uh, we just talked about this in a, a discipleship class, Evan and I lead, just about the idea uh, of prayer and kind of a format of prayer. Uh, but just remembering who God is, that where he seated. I, when when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray using the Father, the the um the Lord's Prayer, um, he he first starts off with, uh, Lord, God, hallowed be your name. In essence, like, I remember who you are, where you're seated. I remember all of who you are. The psalmist is doing the same thing. Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out before you day and night. May my prayer reach your presence. Listen to my cry. For I've had enough troubles. My life is near Sheol, which is a, a descriptive word for, in essence, death, hell, um, the valley of Sheol. My life is near Sheol. I am counted among those going down to the pit. I am like a man without strength. Abandoned among the dead, I am like the slain lying in the grave, whom you are no long, whom you no longer remember, and who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest part of the pit, and the darkest places in the depths. Again, that's the recognition of that. That if this is coming from you, then it means you're the only one that can bring relief. That was the implication of this verse, and we'll see it again in fourteen. It says, your wrath weighs heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves, Selah. Which again, that just a side remember, that word means to stop, that the psalmist is stopping to reflect. You have distanced me, verse eight. You have distanced my friends from me. You have made me repulsive to them. I'm shut in and cannot go out. My eyes are worn out from crying, Lord. I cry out to you all day long. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do departed spirits rise up to praise you, Selah? Will your faithful love be declared in the grave, your faithfulness in Abaddon? Will your wonders be known in the darkness of your righteousness in the land of oblivion? But I call to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer meets you. Again, here's the, the, the calling out to God. Lord, why do you reject me? Why do you hide your face from me? From my youth, I have been suffering in near death. I suffer your horrors. I'm desperate. Your wrath sweeps over me. Your terrors destroy me. They surround me like water all day long. They close in on me from every side. You have distanced loved one and neighbor from me. Darkness is my only friend. And that's the end of the psalm. Yeah, that's a very apt psalm for this This, this podcast, right? Um, and the crazy thing about it is, I, I think this is why it's so poignant for me in, in, in today's world, in today's day and age, in light of reading Ezekiel and ending with Ezekiel the way that it ended. It, it's really interesting and important to understand that even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of trial, even in the midst of difficulty, 
Like our hope exists in God alone, even when we don't have an answer to the prayers we're praying, to the calling out to God, even when he doesn't seem to respond. The tension and the challenge for us as followers of Christ is our hope does not exist in circumstances. Our hope exists in the God who is sovereign, who created the heavens and the earth, who is unfolding his will, his redemptive plan throughout human history, throughout all of history. And that's who we hope in. And when we don't feel like there's a, an answer to our prayer, our hope at times wavers, even as the psalmist, my hope is wavering, but he still turns to God. And it, it's the hope and the encouragement and the challenge for me even, like in the midst of hardship, do I turn to God? Am I regularly willing to turn to God? Uh, and that's what I think is so important and challenging about the psalm. So, and I do love the Ezekiel connection because there is there is a turn coming uh, later on in the book, but there's a turn coming. Yeah. It, it, yeah, the book of Ezekiel doesn't completely end on hopelessness like that first section does. But on that note of exceptional hopelessness, that, <laughs> that wraps up this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. Um, as a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find all of our other resources on our website, grove.church, under the media tab. Uh, and if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you'd like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do this on our website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. But hey, thank you all so much for listening. Have a great day.